welcome. It seems just like malpractice to be in a room on this campus without windows. I don't know who designed this space. It's wrong. We need to start there in agreement. Okay. We all learn in different ways. I like to think when I stare at the ocean, you know, and everything else is drowned out, I'm doing okay. But You're yes. being recorded. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've said this. Um, friends, it's lovely to share this space and this time with you. Welcome. My name is Mallory Wyckoff. I come to you from Clearwater, Florida, which is part of Tampa Bay on the West Coast. So uh, being near the water feels really good and right to me. We don't have mountains in Florida. I think there's like a hill somewhere in the center of the state. Otherwise, it's pretty flat. But the sea breeze and palm trees, I'm feeling right at home. It's always good to, good to be here. Um, I don't know. It, it, I'm looking around, and I don't know if, I, if I've connected with any of you all before. So um, anything that might be helpful to share, let me briefly say. Oh, I've got two little girls, Olive and Ivy. They're six and three. They're really amazing. Husband Tim. Uh, as far as work, I do a number of different things. I, I work for um, an organization called Search for Common Ground. It's the world's largest organization dedicated to peace building. I work in about 33 different countries. Um, I have taught for years at Lipscomb University in Nashville. We lived there for about 15 years. I'm a spiritual director, have a private practice, and then for about five or six years trained other folks to become certified spiritual director, directors, I uh, facilitate retreats. Just did one last weekend in Florida on the beach, which is lovely. Uh, wrote a book that came out a few months ago. And occasionally I take a nap, but not often, <laughs> not as often as I would like. Uh, so much more can be said, but I think that's enough, hopefully just to give you a sense of, of who I am. Let me also say that our time today I'm not going to be offering a lecture or a lesson um, for various reasons. But one, because I don't think it's actually the most helpful way for us to engage a lot of content, but particularly this type of content that we're going to be exploring. So I'm going to uh, read a little bit from my book. I will um, engage, well, I'll facilitate some practices. I have to stay close to this thing. That's going to be tricky. Uh, I will facilitate some practices for us to engage. Um, so ultimately, this will be much more experiential than a cognitive type experience. So for some of you, that might be challenging. You want a really good debate or uh, you want to argue about theological tenets. There's like a little room for that, but not, not much. Um, because I could say a lot more on this, but I think that's actually a safer place for us to engage theology and spirituality and I'm not really interested in those that kind of safe space. I am about creating safety in other ways. But it's really easy to um, leave out our entire bodies and systems <laughs> within ourselves when we engage these conversations primarily through an intellectual lens. And I'm much more interested in how we experience them in our gut, in our core, in our bodies, in our emotions, our sensations, and so forth. And so hopefully that's most of where our time today will actually be spent. For some of you, you're like, that's awesome. For others, you're thinking about what other session you can quickly move to at any moment. Um, but either way, I'm glad you're here. To start, it might be helpful just to take a moment and even remember back whether it was literally five minutes ago or weeks ago when you saw the schedule or any time in between, 
think for a moment about what was it from the title and or the description of this session that was interesting to you, that piqued your interest, that was compelling, that made you a little curious? Do you have any hope or expectation for what this time together might entail? Take a moment, sit with that, and just sense into it. As you find that kind of memory within yourself, again, whether it's really recent or it's something you've been thinking about for a while, we just notice that everyone in the room is bringing our own backgrounds, perspectives, experiences in general, and in particular, we are bringing our unique hopes and expectations for this time. A particular set of questions that we're asking, whether directly related to this content or not, um, some assumptions that we're bringing. And so all of that comes into this room in this space and, and come to bear on this conversation. What's the title, Images of God and Self? I think that's, I think that's what I submitted like eight months ago. Um, hard <laughs> to remember, but we're going to explore images of, of God and images of self. To me, those two are always interconnected. And so the best way I can talk about that is actually I want to read a little bit from uh, from my book, God Is, that I put out back in September, that very much is where this conversation is, is coming out of, okay? So let me start there, and then we're going to move into a practice with this. Before I start reading this, um, does everybody have at least a piece of paper and some... Does everyone have paper? <laughs> Who still needs a pen? Okay. Um, paper I don't need back, but that's yours. I did borrow these pens from my friend Sarah Barton, and she's lovely, but I'd want to make sure that I get her her pens back and don't make her mad at me. So if you borrowed a pen just at the end, try to remember to give it back, but paper's yours. Sorry? I will do my best. Yes, I will. Okay. Still need a Okay. All right, so I'm going to read the first chapter from this book this book, my book, um, and as I do, I'm going to invite you just to pay attention to how you experience it. What do you notice? Does it stir anything within you? Is there a question that comes up? Is there a moment of deep resonance? Is there a moment where you feel resistance? Um, if it's helpful, you can take note uh, of any of those things, but mostly just, just be aware how you're, how you're experiencing this, okay? All right. Expand. You are not small. Your foremothers did not do what they did so you could occupy small. Malebo Sapoti. This is, as they call it, my Jesus year. I am 33 years old. I'm a mother of two small girls living in a city that loves country music and southern food. I could do without both, unless Casey Musgraves counts, in which case I like country music. I've never been very good at math, but if we keep things simple and project my lifetime to be 99 years, I'm one-third of the way through. 
This takes my breath away a bit. No one, as far as I know, much likes considering how much closer they are to death than the last time they checked. But if it's really a Jesus year, and I manage to make it past 33, I suppose I'm doing all right. I spend much of my time looking back. I'd much rather walk backward and accidentally bump into death and have him in sight the entire time I make my way down a long hallway. Nobody, I mean nobody, knows how to handle that situation. How long are we supposed to look down at the floor? When's the right moment to look up? Who acknowledges whom first? And while we're at it, when are we supposed to use who and when is it whom? So I look back, and when I do, I see all of the Mallories that came before. The baby with bleached blonde hair and tan skin, five-year-old girl, the five-year-old girl with one dimple and baby teeth, the preteen with bangs, oh God, the bangs, the emo enough to hang, but I still do my homework teenager, the high schooler on fire for God, the responsible college student ready to change the world, the bride who forgot to buy wedding shoes, the idealist 20-something beginning her career, the bags under her eyes mama with a newborn hangover, and the one sitting here, smelling my sea salt candle and researching my first tattoo. I love all of these Mallories. I needed all of them. I did not leap my way to 33, managing to avoid bad haircuts and regrettable boyfriends. I expanded my way through each and every phase. Some days, I shed skin like a reptile. Some days, I tried on a new wardrobe to see how it hugged my frame. And at every turn, I grew more fully into my truest self, including all that came before and transcending it. I feel a bit breathless at this altitude, this third of life lookout point, where I have enough road behind me to make deep reflection worthwhile and miles ahead of me yet to go, but I'm expanding my lungs and inhaling deeply. This expansion of self has been equal parts painful, the shedding, the releasing, the subtracting, and blissful, the embracing, the accepting, the growing. But I've known no other option. To stop evolving is to die. The fundamental energies of the universe move it forward. As famed 20th century paleontologist and Jesuit priest Pierre Teilhard de Chardin reminded us, I have felt that fundamental energy moving me forward. At this point in life, I know no other way but to ride the waves as they come. If you've watched NBC's show, The Good Place, you may remember the scene. Please come in and join wherever you can find a seat. 
If you've watched NBC's show The Good Place, you may remember the scene of Chidi and Eleanor's final evening together. They've lived their lives on Earth. They've lived a million lives in the hereafter, and it's time to move forward. Chidi, who is typically weighed down by anxiety and brilliance and a crippling inability to make decisions, is uncharacteristically calm. Eleanor doesn't share his peaceful energy, having opted instead to spend the day rehashing highlights with Chidi and dragging him to his favorite places on Earth in hopes of keeping him around. She isn't ready to let him go. She knows what has been and does not know what will be, and she wants so much to stay in the now. But there's an energy pulling Chidi forward, one Eleanor did not create and one she cannot stop. And so at last she relents, and they spend their final evening together looking out over a sunset. Eleanor. I was never good at being sad, partly because my mom straight up told me not to be. But this is sad, man. You got a John Locke quote or a piece of Kantian wisdom you could throw at me? Cheaty. Those guys were more focused on rules and regulations. For spiritual stuff, you gotta turn to the East. Eleanor, I'll take anything you got. Hit me. Cheaty. Picture a wave in the ocean. You can see it, measure it, its height, the way the sunlight refracts through it when it passes through. It's there, and you can see it, and you know what it is. It's a wave. And then it crashes on the shore, and it's gone. But the water is still there. The wave was just a different way for the water to be for a little while. 33 years of waves in, I can see them all. I can picture them out in front of me or behind me or within me, whichever it is. I've shown up in the world in different ways, in different skin, and the continued expansion of myself grounds me deeper still. A few years ago, I attended a spiritual formation retreat where we were asked to reflect on the major movements of our lives. Putting pen to paper, I began to recall some of the waves to give them names, to see my life laid out in chapters. An exercise like this is equal parts embarrassing and nostalgic, but also profoundly helpful. Eventually, we were asked to repeat the exercise, but this time, we were to track the waves of our evolving image of God. With crayons and markers, I began to sketch all the varied ways I have understood and imaged and experienced the divine. Despite my total ineptitude with anything artistic, the picture that unfolded was perfectly clear. The waves of my own movement and growth in the world have mirrored how God has shown up and taken form in my life. It's like two waves in a rhythmic dance, separate from one another, but moving as one. In each season of life, with each iteration of myself, I have seen God reflected in multiple lights. 
I have encountered various images of the God who is all and none of them. When I was a bleached blonde, tan skinned baby Mallory growing up on the beach, God was father to me. Somehow I managed to win the dad lottery and have only ever known the very best version of a father. One who, while on a family vacation as my brother and cousins dumped bottles of bubble bath into the tub and suds poured out the bathroom door and into the hallway, chose to keep the video camera focused on my eight-month-old chubby face, gently whispering to me about how much he loved me. When I heard at church that God was our Father, I felt warm and safe. I knew I could crawl in that God's lap, and he would read me books and do all of the voices. I knew I would be protected and fought for and have all of my needs taken care of. When I connected with a group of friends who were also emo enough to hang but still did their homework, I sensed a God who was friend, pulling me toward relationship and connection. I felt seen by God. Adolescence is an adventure in insincerity, desperately trying on personas until you find the one that gets you accepted into the pack, or at least makes you less of a target. To find real, meaningful connection with a God who seemed interested in spending time with me was no small gift. My connection with this friend grew, and I grew. Growing up in a Christian home, school, and church, I heard endless talks about God's plan for my life well before Drake made it cool or Degrassi dominated Canadian airwaves. In small and big decisions alike, I came to know God as guide, one who helped direct my steps and offered wisdom for how to take them. I knew I wasn't alone in the world, making my way in this vast cosmos. I had a caring and knowledgeable guide that I could trust who had my best interest in mind. In high school, while on a short-term mission trip to Guatemala, my privilege came face to face with poverty and I was undone. I read parts of the Bible I never had seen before, parts that seemed to indicate that God was terribly interested in matters of justice and care for the vulnerable and not entirely thrilled with those who amass wealth and power. I was both compelled and confused. How had I managed to spend 16 years in a faith system where this kind of theology was not even a blip on the radar screen? Until that point, I functioned believing that my humanness was sinful, that I needed to be something other than human and gather often with other Christians committed to the same pretense, that salvation was a way of ultimately escaping our humanity. The terms may not have been so crass, but really only slightly less. With all of this humanity avoidance, there wasn't much energy remaining for matters like caring for creation or dismantling oppression. But in a hurricane refugee village in the central highlands of Guatemala, I met a God who was social justice warrior. Inspired by this God, I began to ask questions of everything, solely at first, gently even. 
until eventually I was the obnoxious college student asking to meet with my intro to theology professor after every class because 7.45 a.m. is the perfect time to discuss ethics of nonviolence. My questions led me to seminary. And seminary led me to the God of deconstructed presence. I thought it would be a season of building on a 20-something-year-old foundation, steady and sure. Instead, it was a demolition. My peers and I faced complexities and ambiguities and inconsistencies, and I watched how they responded. Some could not manage to hold it all, to endure the painful process, and they left. Some remained in the program, but dropped out of faith altogether. Others fashioned a sturdy set of blinders and processed through each course, shoving aside and out of sight everything that threatened their pre-existing perspectives. We all have ways of surviving when we feel threatened. And I'm certain some people would rather face a mad gunman than expose their faith to scrutiny. The fear is just too great. I've never been immune to this fear. I know what it feels like in my body. But I also knew that half-assing this journey could never be an option. That during my time in seminary, I had to commit to a deep dive into whatever surfaced as I explored faith. The deconstruction was disorienting and painful, but I was not alone in it. Even when I no longer knew what I meant when I said, God, I knew this unknown God was present. Deconstructed presence held space for me as together we sat in the darkness waiting long enough for a spark of light to emerge. There have been more Mallory's and more images of God than can be named here. But suffice it to say that my self-exploration has always led me to a deeper and broader experience of myself and of God. I cannot separate these parallel movements any more than I could separate a wave from the ocean. I've set out to write about the expansiveness of God because there are too many energies that resist this notion that seek to keep God and humanity small. I don't mean God's size. Plenty of people and Sunday school songs will tell you God has the whole world in God's hands, that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. But behind these grand notions of God's capabilities tends to lie a small and narrow conception of what God is actually like. It's as if many believe that one image of God is sufficient capable of holding all that we are and all that we will be, able to contain all that God is. But my reality has never reflected that. My journey has included this small God, and my journey has moved me forward. A small God, a small you, has never served the world. I started the book this way, one, because I had a clear sense this is how the book wanted to start as I was partnering in creating this thing. 
And because as you heard me say several times in this chapter, I don't know how to fully extract from one another my evolving experience and sense of self from my evolving experience and sense of the divine. That is not to say that they are the same, but it is to say that they move in tandem with one another. And in my larger journey of moving away from smallness, which I talk about a lot more in the book, into an increasing space of abundance and expanding and expanded and expanding sense of self, so too has my image of and experience of the divine grown from a place of smallness to one that has expanded and continues to expand. And as I'll talk about more in a little bit, I think that is essential for our human flourishing. But before we get to that, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I wanna give you some time, probably at least 15 minutes, so there's no rush. It'll take longer, it'll kind of feel it out. To begin to reflect back, if you were writing a chapter about the various Ryans or Davids or Drews or I think that's all the name tags I can see, the various yous that have been, what do they look like? What name might you give them? Um, what chapter of your life do they feature in? There are a lot of different ways you could do this. You could start by uh, thinking back on your life and kind of dividing it into chapters by season. You could name those chapters if that's helpful. Kind of getting the, the lay of the land, almost a feel for the larger structure of the story, and then thinking about you in particular, the various yous that have been, the various shapes that you have taken in the world, the skins that you have worn, and what names have you worn, whether ones you gave to yourself or ones that others gave to you. Problem child, beloved daughter, troublemaker, wounded wife, any number of things. What names have you given to yourself and others given you? Begin to sense into and then chart however you'd like to on that paper, begin to chart the various yous that have been so far in the world. Is that making sense? Okay, I wish I had crayons to give you for this, <laughs> um, and I wanted to, but my suitcase was at max capacity, and Southwest wouldn't let me fly with them. So, unfortunately, this is all we have. Uh, but that can be a really helpful way to engage color as well, and pictures and stuff. So do the best what you have with a uh, boring piece of paper and pen. Um, okay, take some time. Did, any, did anyone come in and you need pen and paper? Okay, I'll get it to you. So we've got time, like I said, this is much more of a workshop than a lecture, so take your time, engage the practice. I've got some right there. Make it easy. Okay, friends, some of you were done 10 minutes ago and some of you made it to like age seven on your paper and probably everything in between, so. This, if you didn't get to finish, um, that's okay. You can take this exercise and practice with you when you have more, more time and space. This is really just meant to kind of get us thinking and moving. Okay, so let me just check in. Anything that you kind of notice, noticed in your charting of some of the various yous that have been in the world so far? Yes. 
phases of adulthood. And that was like there's an early adult and then there's the next phase of adults. So it's kind of odd. Yeah. It's yeah. Like adulting. You know, it's like you know, when you go to Disney, it's like I, I stop adulting. Yeah. So it's yeah. two phases of adulting. But surely we'll get to the point of it where we have it figured out, right? Surely we get there? Okay, good. You're all in agreement. Okay, good. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I have four phases of spiritual awareness. Okay. Okay. And I've thought about this for some time, not just today. Sure. But this was actually easy. Yeah. Okay, good. Different phases of spiritual awareness. Good. What else? way you talked about our sense of self and our sense of God being so intertwined really came through for me. Mm -hmm. That they were very, there was no separating those two. Mm -hmm. Both of those came up in all of these phases for me. Yeah. Good. We're going to lean into that more in just a second, but I'm glad that that's already, yeah, that, that comes yikes, that comes through in this. Good. Thanks. Yes, please. Um, that there was a lot of fear in all of my stages, mm. and it started to get less and less the better I got into relationship with God. Okay. Okay. Good. Thank you. Yes. Um, as I reflect my life, at the time, <coughs> I, realized, I, I thought about it's all about me. As a journey, at some point, I thought it's all about God. And at this point, I realized it's still all about me. Mm -hmm. So I go around a full circle. Mm -hmm. And the difference is, I started before I want to sit on the throne. Now it's all about me, but I'm not on the throne. But God is on the throne. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> I started to understand why Paul says he's the worst apostles and they become the worst of sinners. I used to thinking I'm very noble. Now I think I'm not noble at all. All I do is. <coughs> Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Anything else you noticed? Okay. Okay. So here's what I'd like you to do now. Whether you got all the way through your life or kind of hit some of the, the highlights and, and uh, some of the use that have been, I'd like you to think about, look back at these various selves that have been and consider what was your dominant image of God at that given season? What was the primary image that you had for God? Now, it may be one that you no longer hold. It may be one that you say, actually, that wasn't very helpful or true. Not looking for right or wrong here, only looking for what was real to you at the time. Was God an angry parent? Um, was God a loving friend? Anything. In looking back over these seasons of time, what was your dominant image for God? Okay? So I'm going to give you a few more minutes to begin to chart that. This one might take a little more time, um, a little more work, I mean, to think through, perhaps not, but begin to just engage it with...
So perhaps you didn't get all the way through with this one either. No problem. Again, we're just kind of stirring the waters here a little bit. Tell me what you noticed. Anything that surprised you, confused you, felt a little conflicted by, curious about? What'd you notice? Of my eight chapters, God's only in the last two. Okay. So in the first six, did I do the math right? I'm not great at math, but I think I did. Um, uh, you had not a real clear sense or image of what, who or what God was? Uh, was never presented. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. And what I saw was not real. Say it again. I'm sorry. Didn't seem real. Okay. Okay. Say one thing, do something else. Got it. Okay. All right, thank you. I felt that the God I grew up with was not the right God for me, in that I was expected to live my life a certain way, and the individualism wasn't there. And I, I feel like from a young age, I felt like I saw God as an all-encompassing, loving being, regardless of my unique self. So I didn't feel like I fit in. Like mm -hmm. I believed, but I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like it was for me. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't the right fit. Mm -hmm. And it probably really within you know, even within the last couple of years is when I really started to recognize having been created by God for God, I am already perfect <clears throat> and in the uniqueness that I have and that I bring to the table. And that's when I started to actually see God for what for what it really is. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I realized that I never depended on other people to show me God. Okay. As an example for looking for God. It didn't come from other people. Mm -hmm. So therefore I couldn't blame my not accepting God during that time that I had separated myself from God. Okay on other people. I always depended on God to show me who he was. Okay. Thank you. In my early days, uh, I really, you know, I grew up in China. There's no God there, but I'm really the beloved child of my family. And um, I just, despite we were very poor, we were poor, but I really feel like I had a great childhood. Mm -hmm probably better than what my children have now. And um, I came to U.S. I come, ex experienced quite a bit of success, also failure. That's when I started getting to know Jesus. And that's when I started to have a God of hope. That's my image. Before that, it doesn't matter. God is irrelevant. That's when God is hope. But after five, ten years being a Christian, I feel like God is too demandful. God of a slave master drive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because you have all this, I have to do this, I have to do that. And make total sense, you're a slave to Jesus. You have to come with people, you have to give in contribution, you have to be a good father. And uh, so that's my imaging of God at that time. I said, I talk to God, I say, God, I'm going to give up, mm -hmm. or you take me over. So after 
period of struggle, I give myself to God. And now I come to a place, I feel like God is a loving Father. That's why I started to realize it's all about me. Because God loves me, He wants me to have a good life. Not only life young, because, but at this present time. And I started to see every one of you carry a message, an imaging of God that tells me and enriches my life. And also I started to see, I said, why God want me to love people? I started to realize that when you love people, it is the best way to live in your life. I said, well, that makes sense. That's why I love people. It's not because I'm noble. I love people because I realize Jesus shows me the way to best the life that I can have. While I have a good life, other people have have good life too because God's love is abundant. That's my journey. Thank you. So some of the images you named, God is kind of irrelevant. God in the image of hope. God is a slave driver. God is love. Good. Thank you. Anyone else? Everyone is the truest, clearest picture I have of God. Sorry. It's come in the season of my life that is most unraveled. And all the seasons before where everything about my life made sense and fell into place and I knew exactly what I was doing and where I was and who I was in God, all of those images were really small versions. Mm -hmm. Thank you for naming that. Yes. Um, I realized, you know, what a journey that um, so I was raised in a home where um, there wasn't a question whether it was a God or not. You know what I mean? Like I didn't even enter the picture, but there wasn't that intimate relationship in the home. And, and in some ways, some of the home was unsafe. So the idea of looking at Abba as father was like foreign. And I just, you know, writing this down, I realized just how far his love can take us to now I can picture myself sitting on Abba's lap and, and say, you've got this. Or that he's in the details of our life, in, you know, small and big, you know. And, and just writing this out, just really, you know, just to kind of see, you know, where I was and where he's bringing me. Thank you. So, oh my gosh, I've run into that thing 12 times. <laughs> I need to stand still. So for several years, um, I, as I shared, I taught at, at Lipscomb University in Nashville for several years. And in addition to that, taught at another school, um, teaching kind of an, an intro to the Christian faith course for students, kind of beginning to explore some of the basic tenets of this tradition. And one of the practices that I would have them do is to close their eyes, kind of get quiet, and then to begin to imagine whatever comes up when I say, God. Occasionally, they would respond and might talk about this kind of sense of warmth in their body or 
some light that they might sense or feel. But by and large, the response that I got back from what students imagined, the image that queued up in their mind when I said God was an old white man in the sky. Now, this is the image that we see often in um, even classical art. We see it in the Far Side comics. <laughs> we see it in my, you know, the, in undergrad students' journal reflections. Likely, we see it in our own minds and hearts as well. And I'm less interested in critiquing one image than I am in saying it is wildly insufficient. There is no way that I can flourish fully as a human being if I have only one image of God who in some ways I reflect and in other ways I never can or will. I'm not like that God. If we're talking about race, okay, I see some connection there. If we're talking about sex, I don't. Tables are going to get me. Um, therefore, there's a distance between me and this God. It is hard for me to connect with that God fully. When I talk about this invitation to grow from being really small in the ways that I needed to be small to protect myself in response to some trauma, if there was this invitation to, to expand, to take up more space, not more than I needed, but to take up the space that was mine to take, I can't do that so long as God, which for us is the symbol of the highest order of truth and beauty and love and power, if that symbol doesn't reflect me. This is why I felt I needed to write this book. I needed to explore my experience of an ever-expanding sense of God because I'm convinced that what we believe to be true about God necessarily informs what we believe to be true about everything and everyone else, ourselves included. You cannot defend chattel slavery or Jim Crow laws while you are imaging God as a black woman. You cannot ask women to be less than or be silent if God is divine feminine. You cannot dehumanize persons whose sexuality is different than yours, whether you agree with it or not, if, you are able to, if you're not able to image a God who exists outside of every binary and limitation that we know. I know I'm pushing on some buttons here. I'm okay with that because I 100% believe it in my bones. That truly, Humanity cannot flourish if at the end of the line of all of our prayers and all of our thoughts and beliefs about God is a God who only reflects a particular demographic of people rather than all of humanity. I'm looking around this room and I'm seeing beautiful diversity reflected in, in numerous ways and I'm moved by imagining how you reflect God to me in very particular ways and I'm thankful that my journey has forced me into this place to see that. Because otherwise, I might be able to think, 
but you're a really nice person. But you don't get to be like God in the way that, frankly, the white men in my lives get to reflect God or the systems that they um, hold the most power in. Hear me. White men reflect God as much as anybody else. But again, if at the end of the day, the ways that we image and understand the divine really only come down to reflecting one particular demographic of people, then all of our systems will follow suit. All of our structures of power, religious and otherwise, even in non-religious systems and structures and cultures, because the symbol of God still functions. And we associate this symbol, this name, this idea of God with power, with truth, with a sense of distinction. And you can defend all sorts of dehumanizing practices and systems so long as certain groups of people don't actually reflect God as much as other groups of people get to reflect God. I love and am so grateful for various justice movements that are working to bring greater equity in the world, that are working to enact justice in the world, that are helping to contribute to human flourishing. May, may all of those efforts that are aligned with the spirit of God in the world and within us, may they advance. And I'm convinced that at the end of the day, as I said, if we still hold to the singular image of who God is, then that singular image is still going to dominate. It's still going to sway. It still gets that trump card. This is why I think it's essential that we spend time thinking about what do I actually picture God to be like? How does God show up in my life? When I close my eyes to pray or to meditate or to be quiet, what image shows up on the other end of that? Is it by and large a singular one? Does it only ever look like me? Does it never look like me? Both of those are problematic. I can tell you it has been essential for me, again, in my flourishing as a human being, as a woman, as a mother, to not have to go, God is a good father. Yes, I think God is like a good father. But dang it, when I am there and I'm nursing my little girl, when I am gently tending to wounds on her skin, when I'm changing diapers, when I'm holding her, I reflect the divine as much as my husband does. No more and no less. And when it's two in the morning and I'm exhausted and I don't think I can make it through another night of this parenting journey, the image of God as father is not doing it for me. Because that father doesn't understand what it's like to have leaky breasts or cracked nipples. God is mother, she knows. She knows what it's like to have her body broken open on behalf of the ones that she loves. I need that image of God. 
I need to be able to connect directly with that image of God that reflects my embodiment. And I need the image of God who is a black woman, who is both like me and not like me, one who knows the impact of systemic oppression in her own body, in her family, in her community, and also somehow knows how to teach me about joy as an act of resistance to those systems of oppression. A white male image of God is not going to get me there. It has things to teach me. It has ways of glimpsing God to me. Yes. But here's the thing. When we elevate one particular image of God above all else to the exclusion of all others, then what we're actually practicing is idolatry. Because every image is a symbol. All language is symbolic. But when the distance between a symbol and that which it symbolizes is entirely collapsed, it's no longer a symbol, it's an idol. And so if we only ever engage one particular symbol or one type of language or one image for the divine, that is idolatry. Now, when I do engage the image of God as father, and as I mentioned in this book, unlike many of the women in my life that I know or I have worked with, particularly all the trauma survivors that I have worked with in various capacities in my career, the image of God of a father is actually a pleasant one for me. It's really beautiful. That's not true for everyone. But whether it's true for you or not, it still is only one image, right? It's still insufficient. But here's the thing, when I do get to engage that image, it gets to have life for me again because it gets to be particular again. If I'm in a particular season and the image of God that actually serves me in that moment and helps me see more of God and myself is the image of God as Father, beautiful. It's just, again, that it's insufficient if that's the only one I have. It's insufficient for me and it's insufficient for all of us. Now, I asked you to begin kind of thinking about some of the images that you've engaged in your life for yourself and also for, for God, partly because this, the, the images of God that we engage and also the ones that just are in the air, they function. Whether we're aware of them or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, they function, they have an impact, they are, they're informing the ways, again, that we think about everything and everyone else, ourselves included. Okay, I've said a lot, so let me pause, check in with you. Tell me what you're thinking, feeling, wondering about, points of resonance, points of resistance. What are you noticing? As you were explaining this uh, concept of God not being image of God, I realize that I've developed a sensitivity, somewhat uncomfortable sensitivity, to God being presented as any one image. And I realize that because, well, I'm a preacher, and I send the media person my sermon topic, 
and from that they develop artwork to place on the bulletin and the web page and all that. And this one time it came back and it was an image of God as a white man. Not that I'm against white people, <laughs> but the image of God as a white man rubbed me the wrong way. And so I sent it back to her, I said, you know, can we do something else? But it didn't stop there. Because then I went to another church, which was a predominantly African-American church, and God was presented as a black man. And that kind of rubbed me the wrong way yeah. as well. So I concur with what you're saying, it, it, you know, but I was surprised that I felt that way. Um, I was trying to say, well, what does that make me? You know, I mean, is there something wrong with me? You know, I'm thinking like this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. Good. Thank you for naming that. So I think I, I have a line in that first chapter that I read aloud about these images of God who is all and none of them. And that's absolutely how I think about it. Ultimately, everything that we're talking about, if we're talking about God, is ineffable. It is, it cannot be uh, contained in, in even just a plethora of images, right? Let alone just one. God is ultimately beyond all that. And... God seems really comfortable with engaging the particulars of human communication, such as metaphor, such as symbol, such as story, such as poetry. So that when I engage those various forms of human communication, I think about it like a window frame. Now, you could have a really beautiful window frame or a really ugly one, but either way, the purpose is to see through it. And so even as I encourage us to collect a large, to have a larger collection of images that we engage, ultimately they're just part of that window frame, but it's meant to be looked through, right? If all we have is the frame, and particularly if the frame only comes in one shape and size ever, that's really problematic. And even, even if all of us come together and bring the various pictures and have this incredible mosaic to say, this is something like the divine, beautiful, and now let's look through that image. Not unlike an icon, if, particularly in the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? it's not something you look at, it's actually something you're meant to look through mm -hmm. to access God and truth and beauty in and beyond it. That's how I think about something like, like this. Um, there's some images that I feel a little bit more of that resistance than others because of how they've been weaponized. Mm -hmm. So in, in ways I certainly resonate with that, um, yeah, with that in ways that I can, but it, not in all the same ways that you do because we have a different embodiment and experiences. Well, what but, yeah. it leaves me with is then what is the image of God? And the only thing that I can then refer to God is a spirit, mm -hmm. and he who worships him must worship him in spirit, and to, so to me, a spirit, what is a spirit? Mm -hmm. 
physical thing. Yeah. Mm, that's where I'm at. I'm trying to figure this out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yes, my sense, yes, God is spirit. Mm -hmm. And to go back to the image I used earlier, when it's two in the morning and I'm exhausted, the prayers to a sort of amorphous <laughs> God of spirit aren't getting me there. And because I know that God is very comfortable with, in ways far more than my faith communities and traditions have been, God is comfortable with engaging the particulars of human communication, I'm grateful for the way that image helps me grasp and understand the divine. Not contain God in, in fullness, never. No image or collection of images can do that. And there's some way that I can somehow connect with, understand more fully God, because of that window frame that shows up, even as I know ultimately there's a beyond here. Yes? Yeah, I, I think some, I experienced some of that resistance too, you know, just in terms of the spirit. Um, but as you present it, right, and talk about even our, our, our limited um, expression of that image, right? Because if we're all created in his image, when we look at, a, at the world and the diversity, I see God creating people so different um, to give us a glimpse of who he is, right? In all of the diversity, because we don't capture all of who he is. So even when I think about God, I generally am not picturing like some physical concept of him, it usually is, you know, I am usually embracing his qualities. And even as I talk about him, he usually is a he, right? Which doesn't bother me, you know, and I, I don't think it really bothers me if I, well, it probably doesn't bother me if I hear somebody call God a she, right? Just because of, just my, just because of what is presented in the Bible, right? So I'm generally going to reference him as a he, but embrace all of his his qualities, right? Even if it is a nurturing, which we don't generally see a man as being nurturing. And I think that's problematic too, because even as we talk about masculine and feminine qualities, right? We have labeled people so that if we see a man that we would think is more feminine, then we label him and if we see a woman who we think is more masculine, but who's to say that being a woman, you can't have those qualities like basketball, football, or whatever the case may be, um, or a male wanting to sew. Like what's wrong with that? I think that we have, like we've kind of like mixed up some things, right? And caused some problems. But when I think of God, and you've already said it, he's much bigger than what we imagine anyway that nothing captures that and he's okay with presenting himself in a way that is beneficial for us for that time as we grow closer to him right um, because I believe some things about him that I think people would be uncomfortable with I didn't grow up with you know we didn't grow up God with God in the home per se just that God existed right there, there's a God, but that doesn't mean anything, right? Other than there's a God that exists that doesn't mean anything for your life. Um, but I honestly know now, when I look back, 
that there was a God watching over me and allowing me to have some experiences for a time later that I can look back and say, God heard me, even though I didn't know him. And I know that in, in some places where I have been taught, that's like a no-no, right? God is not hearing people that don't know him. But I know that God heard me even when I didn't know him. So he, so I agree with you. He's much bigger. And sometimes, you know, even as we seek to kind of like relate to him and make him who we are, he's much bigger than that. So one of the, the related questions then is, are there ways we're invite, invited to be bigger? As we begin to sense into more of God. And that space and capacity grows a little bit. Can that also create space for us to say, might there be more of me here? Than my trauma wanted to allow me to occupy. Than my family wanted me to occupy. Than various systems want me to occupy. See that, that interplay between those two? I feel like they're always, always connected. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I, I'm looking at a God a little bit different. I, I'm a wall. God is so much bigger than me, I cannot comprehend, just like what you said. And uh, also, I also know God, whether you say it's loving father, loving mother, loving brother, one thing I know, God loves me. The, I also understand everybody, even the so-called oppressed or blessed, we are equally blessed. The difference between blessed people and not blessed people is the blessed people see they're blessed, and the not blessed people, they do not see they're blessed, because God says, I rain, put the rain down on the wicked and on the righteous. The difference between wicked, wicked and righteous is this. The righteous see their blessing, the wicked don't. I don't think God is in the business trying to change in society, per se. Rather, God's in the business to let people to know who he is. Because once we see God, doesn't matter what situation it is, you are blessed. You will say, wow, even though I don't make much money, you will say, thank God, even though I'm hungry. You see, that's the difference between the wicked and the righteous. And what I see is this. We, as we grow up, because we don't really, we have a hard time to learn things. So God put us in a box for our sake. Whatever the window frame you are in, they put us each in the box. Because if we're not in the box, we're not able to learn. Mm -hmm. As we in that box learning, somehow that box becomes God. Anything inside the, that box is God. Everything outside the box is not of God. And that's the problem. I like what you said. We need to expand our box. Mm -hmm. So we need to think outside of that box. But thinking outside the box can be dangerous because you bring the new ideas. Remember 
Jesus said, if you clean up your house, make sure you fill it with the Holy Spirit. When you don't, you know what happened? There'll be seven times seven more demons will occupy your heart. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the path to God. So it's really, really important as we exploring, we focus on the way of Jesus, which is love, compassion, merciful, kind, patient, perseverance, there's always hope, and no record of wrong, and all these things, when we do that, you will know you're blessed. Your life will be great. Thank you. So here's why I'm going to push back a bit. I can know that I'm blessed. I can know that God loves me and sees me. I can also be dehumanized in very real ways that perpetuate harm against me and other people. And those can happen at the same time. That does not mean that I do not believe that God loves me or sees me. It means that I am in a church, let's say, that says, that's nice that you're convinced that God has called you to something. Please be quiet. That is not flourishing. That is not love. I'm saying that as a person who bears enormous privilege in the world, more so than plenty of people. And my level of awareness of blessing or not does not, <laughs> does not bear out in the ways that I'm actually treated in the world. And all of those characteristics that you beautifully named of the ways of Jesus, I think they do take us into active engagement with the world as his life shows. How are humans being harmed? And how can we move into ways, again, that contribute to equity, to flourishing, to kingdom life? And I think that the images of God that we engage can move us towards those ends or away from those ends. They have incredible power in that regard. Others, something you noticed, something you're um, thinking about, curious about? Yes. Um, other than images of God that are evil, obviously contrary to the way that he's portrayed in scripture, do you think there are any images of God that are off limits, mm -hmm. out of bounds, inappropriate? Yeah. yeah, great question. This is true for the way I think about a lot of a lot of things. That it is not a here's a clearly one category and clear here's a clearly another category. Sometimes there are those. If you said the image of God that I'm engaging is inviting me to be a more violent person, I would say I'm not sure that's moving us in the right direction. Right. But even there, what I'm curious about is what are the what's the fruit of this? This image that I begin to engage and explore, I sense like I kind of want to sit with that one. What is the fruit of it? Do I begin to experience a fuller sense of God's love for me? Do I see humans in a more loving way? Do I feel like I am a more healthy and integrated and a whole person as I engage this image? Um, 
do I am I living with my eyes wider open to see my neighbors and their experiences? That's really beautiful fruit. And I'm much more interested in that than I am starting with a, well, here's what's okay and here's not with the image. Again, that is not to say that there that to me every image is on the table. But we discern this in community. One of the practices I mentioned, I, I am a spiritual director. So as I sit with folks and they're naming to me whatever is really real and true for them in a particular season, I'm often listening for the image of God that exists behind what they're saying. Because every belief that we have, there is some image of God that stands behind that. So if the thought is, I know, I just, I really, I've, I've got to do more. I, I haven't been praying lately and I really need to get in my Bible. What's the image of God behind that belief? Perhaps it's something like the slave driver that you mentioned earlier, this kind of taskmaster that's really keen on making sure that I check all these boxes. Now, that image is functioning in the background all of the time, whether you bring it into your conscious awareness or not. It's functioning. And it's not until we get to the point of articulation to actually go, if what I'm saying here were true, if the thing that I'm believing or considering were true, what would that say about God? What image does that point to that we actually get to go, yeah, I don't buy that. I don't think that's actually the heart of God. That's not how I sense the divine showing up in my life. That's not how I experience spirit moving in me. And then we get to explore, okay, so where did that image come from? When did I pick that one up? When was that thrust upon me? And what might be a new image that wants to surface and emerge here? of myself and of, of God. So that's a long way to respond to a really great question, but thinking about, and that might even be helpful for you, you know, thinking about like, what would be the fruit that I would want to see come from this? And of course, we are not meant to do any of this alone. We do this in community, whether it's with, let's say, a spiritual director like I'm describing here or in groups in your churches or communities. Hey, here's what I'm beginning to, to sense, to wonder. How does that strike you? What else? What are you noticing? Your point about insufficiency of holding on to one image made me realize something in my timeline that um, the images that I was carrying in earlier seasons, while they are good and can be accurate versions of God, they were totally insufficient. But my whole trajectory in relationship with him was scaffold on these really weak images mm -hmm. because they were singular, not because they were wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't put that together mm -hmm. until you made that point yeah. that the problem is not the right word, but I'm, I don't want to take too long. The problem of one image mm -hmm. is the weakness of it being one image. Mm -hmm. And I can see that pattern in my life and realize why I was either closer or distant in my relationship with God and when that was working for me or against mm. me because that scaffolding was built on such weak things mm. because they were so isolated mm -hmm. and singular and how that's so much different after a season of unraveling where everything that I've done in trying to turn toward holding on to images of God has been about just seeing God 
and not trying to figure out what it is that I, I need God to look like, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that distinction between something being wrong versus it just being insufficient. Yeah. I don't look back at any of the Mallory's that came before, the few that I've read you and the many more that existed, and go, oh, they were wrong. No. I could not have leapt from three-year-old Mallory to 35-year-old Mallory, nor should I. I had to grow. I had to expand. It's not that she was wrong. It's not that her understanding or perspective of the world was wrong. It's not that the shape that she took or the name she bore was wrong. It's what it was. Like I said, I needed all of these Mallory's. I also needed to expand. There was more of me. There will continue to be more of me. So yeah, it really is just about knowing that it's insufficient. It is not, it's not that it's necessarily wrong. Sometimes you may go, oh yeah, that one was off. (laughs) That image that I had, no, that was not helpful. That was not life-giving for me or for those around me. Yeah, that, that category can come into play. Sometimes it's just, it's not that it was wrong, it was just so singular that there was no capacity for actual expansion beyond that. And if I would, I would remain so tethered to that one image that I wouldn't get to actually grow and to, to expand into fuller sense of self. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you clarified that for me uh, because there are some things that you can say that's wrong. Well, you can, you said? Yes, yeah, that, uh-huh. that are indeed wrong. Um, it's like I went to a church one time and um, the preacher in the congregation stood up. It was during football season and he, they wanted their team to win the game. So he said, let's everybody put our hands over here and let's pray for our team. You know? So praying to God for your team to win show favor towards your team means that he's not going to show favor towards the other team. (laughs) So I think that's wrong. Misplaced, inappropriate, Mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, So there are times, I think, you know, when we hold to a belief or do things in our life or perceive. When we, and this is good for me because I'm thinking about this, why does this black and white thing or whatever God is for this and one team versus, because then we're putting, we're saying that God, the, the, the presence of God is beneficial towards one person mm-hmm. and not towards another. Mm-hmm. And that is wrong. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I'm thinking what I'm saying, you know, after listening to what you said, you know, I think that, you know, when when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, and Moses said, "Well, who shall I say sent me?" He said, "Tell him I am. This is who I am. And I am is I'm everything. Meaning, it can be whatever, whoever I need to be, sent to, and." an African-American person or Hispanic person, if that's their vision or concept of God, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But if 
that's the only concept of God, meaning God is this way and he's my God and not mm -hmm. your God, that's wrong. Sure. That's wrong. Yeah, I, I, I try to hold a couple things together here. One, yes, it's a, if, whether you, we could, we could take out, you know, God is white male and swap in another, and that is equally problematic. If, it's, if that is to the exclusion of all else. And I know that for plenty of people, there are some images that they're just not going to be comfortable with. They've been so weaponized that, that that actually creates and perpetuates harm for them. It is not to say that other people who, um, who in their embodiment reflect that particular image are wrong or less than. It is to say that the way that that image and the associations that have been connected with it, such as whiteness or maleness, the way that those things have been weaponized, that that's become so, by way of one example, become so weaponized that it would be very hard for some people to engage. They might get to the point where they can. I'm less interested in saying you, you have to, to push than I am in just at least noticing that that's a conscious choice. This is an image I just can't sit with right now because it, I'm, it's too raw. I'm too raw. Um, and I think so long as that's a conscious choice, make those healthy decisions for yourself. That's very different than us engaging one image unconsciously. Whether in our language or in our imagery, in the systems that we erect that say, here's what power gets to look like or not look like, here's who gets to represent that power or not, all of those are speaking to these functioning images of, of God. So I want to hold those things together somehow in intention. Yeah. I think wrong is not the same as misidentified, and misidentified can be more helpful. Because with my particular thought process, if I have an image of God from a season in my life where he was a lot like a taskmaster and it was a critical voice for me. Well, it turns out that when my therapist teaches me about internal family systems, that critical voice is coming from something else, not God. Sure. But they were intertwined for me yeah. in a family dynamic that I didn't have the knowledge to separate. So this was misinterpreted, but not wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's more important for me to understand to heal a piece of my relationship with God than it is for me to decide if one of those images was right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, I, I, um, I want to leave the cat, like, I want to name that if I have an image of God who is an angry parent, I don't think that reflects the heart of God. And as much as in most things in life, categories of like clear, right, and wrong actually don't function very well for me, there, there are some times where that fits, and that would be one way I'd go, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's true. And mm -hmm. there's incredible um, room to explore to go, what's behind that image? Mm -hmm. What wounded part of me is it connected to? Mm -hmm. How did it help me in some way and seek to, how did it help me survive, perhaps, in some way? Mm -hmm. Maybe it got me out of bed, because I believe I, I, gotta, I gotta keep moving, you know, because whatever it may be, okay, maybe it helped me in some way. How's it harming me now? And how am I being invited to move beyond it? Man, that is such interesting work, I think, to explore. Okay, I want to... 
<laughs> I, I mean, I, goodness, I just need to stand still. All right, here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a few minutes and sense into whether there is a particular image of God that God is inviting us to engage in this season. We'll, we'll do that in a second. I'm not interested in what you think is right. This is a time where I would say there isn't a right or wrong. Okay? I'm not looking for the correct answer that you think your pastor or professor or parent is looking for. Not interested. What I am interested in is the God who is glimpsed in all of these images and, and also is beyond them. I'm interested in the ways that that God wants to be experienced in and through and by you and me. And might a particular image in this season help us do just that? That even in the particularities of that image, that we would actually see beyond them. Is there an image, perhaps, that if we were to engage, would invite us not only to see God more fully, but to see ourselves more fully, to see our neighbors more fully, to have a wider imagination for the world and what it can be? Those are interesting questions to me. So I want to spend a minute to listen. For some of you, Doing this type of listening practice feels really comfortable for others. Now is the point where you're like, I survived and I'm going out now. Like, this is it. <laughs> I've heard enough of this lady. I hope that you will consider engaging to the extent that it feels safe and comfortable to try. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to guide us through this. But I'm going to encourage you to notice that as spirit moves... Spirit might take the form of an image that comes to mind, like a picture. Or perhaps you'll sense a physical sensation. Maybe you'll hear a word or a phrase. Maybe there'll be the sense of like deep knowing in your gut. You might hear a song lyric. A poem might come to the front of your mind. Anything. When it comes, do your best to not evaluate, critique, judge or analyze it, but simply to hold it with curiosity. Huh. That image just came. wonder what's there to see there. Sit with it for a moment, explore it a little bit. This is particularly where we are not in the realm of right or wrong. <laughs> but just what is, what comes, noticing it, exploring it with curiosity. Okay? Okay, so if it feels safe and comfortable, I'll invite you to close your eyes. And for a moment, just bring awareness to your breath. You don't need to force it into any new rhythm or pattern. Just notice it. Consider that whether this is the first moment of the entire day that you have breathed with awareness, 
this pulsating rhythm has continued to carry you forward even without your awareness of it. Bring awareness to your body, what it feels like to sit in the chair, what the air feels like on your skin. Notice that you are fully present here in this moment. Reflect for a moment on the various things that have stirred within you over the last hour together. Points of resonance, points of resistance, curiosities. Reflect for a moment on the current season that you are in with all of its particularities, the things that are front of mind for you, the unique challenges or opportunities, the questions that you're asking in this season. Now I'll invite you to hold open this question before God and before yourself. Is there an image of God I'm being invited to engage here in this season? Is there an image of God I'm being invited to engage here in this season? And now simply notice whatever you notice. As you begin to sense perhaps a particular image, notice how you feel about it. Is there any resistance? Is there comfort? Begin to imagine for a moment, if you were to engage or explore that image, what might that look like? Turn your attention to your breath. 
this time, I'm going to invite you to breathe in a little bit more deeply and exhale a little bit more slowly. Notice what it feels like to expand your lungs a bit more fully, to feel into the extra space created. As you consider ways that perhaps you are being invited to expand. another breath or two and when you are ready you can gently return your attention to the room okay just for a moment let me just open it up to give you a chance to name anything came up for you, anything you noticed, a particular image. We won't offer commentary on it or explanation, simply just naming. Begin to sense this. This is the image that surfaced in my mind that I'm holding. Just a brief naming of it. Anybody feel like sharing it? A sword. A sword, okay. Kind forgiver. A kind forgiver. Love. 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 A bigger box. A bigger box. Tranquil and peace. Tranquil, peace. I saw a um, deepening sense of integration within in my body, within my myself, and God, God within that. That's kind of weird. Please. If I'm the image of my tattoo artist. I'm sorry, I missed it. The image of my tattoo artist. Okay. Creation, but there's some things that are wrong with that. Okay. I'm curious about that with you. Yeah. What would it look like to image God as your tattoo artist? In what ways? You saw Jesus? Okay. Yeah. In what ways do does this particular image or idea or that virtue invite me into fuller experience of God and expression of myself? I hope that you'll continue to sit with that question now and in seasons to come. Is there an image I'm being invited to engage here? Also to consider the implications of it. That's what ultimately this conversation is about for me. As you've heard me say several times, that what we think to be true about God necessarily informs what we think to be true about everything and everyone else. So if I were to engage this particular image of God, how would that inform how I see my neighbor? 
how I see myself, the ways I show up in the world, the practices I engage, things I will no longer tolerate, and so forth. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple little things from uh, the last chapter of the book, and then we'll be done. I don't know if you've ever seen videos of individuals who are colorblind when they receive the glasses that help them access the fuller color spectrum. They are my very favorite videos to watch. I cry every time. And here's what's so interesting to me. It is not that those colors didn't exist before. The sky was always blue, the grass was always green, the balloon was always red. Those colors, that reality already always was. But suddenly, in a moment, and with the gift of this new lens, this individual now has access to those colors, to that reality, in a new way that they didn't previously have. Sometimes when we begin to expand the ways that we engage God, it can feel like, uh, I'm like, you're talking about a whole new God entirely? Everything I've been taught is wrong? I mean, it, it can stir up a lot of kind of um, dissonance. And what I want to suggest is that, again, the God who is both expressed in these various images and none of them, who cannot be contained in them, that that reality, that that truth, that that beauty already always was and always has been. And what we are doing is simply putting on some new lenses that help us see it more fully, to access that reality in ourselves and, and one another. That image has been helpful for me. And it has emboldened me to name the divine wherever and however God shows up. I take a lot of courage from the story of Hagar. She is an enslaved African woman in the most horrific of circumstances, being forced into rape so that her mistress and master can be built up. Then she's cast into the wilderness. And in that place, God sees her. And what does she do? She's the first one in all of scripture to do it. She names God. She puts the name of God on her lips and breathes it out like fire. She could have said, no, I'm just crazy. It's his first trimester paranoia. Or, no, no, my status is too lowly. I, I, I couldn't be one to name God. She doesn't. She has an encounter with the divine. This is how God has shown up for her, and now she names God. I want to have that audacity. Not because I think that I can ever know God in all of God's fullness by myself, but because in my embodiment and in my particulars and in the ways that God shows up for me, I can say something about God. I can speak about who and what God is, even if only in part. But may that continue to expand. So to that end, one of my practices is to collect names for God. Whenever I read something or encounter something and I think that is another way of saying God, I take note of it. So I'm just going to share a few of those with you. And I'll invite you to notice how they strike you. 
the ultimate ancestor, all that is, that which is beyond knowing but not beyond loving, ground of all being, she who dwells within, the relationship, ultimate participant, most moved mover, the big tradition, inner knower and reminder, absolute vulnerability between three, God of the gallows, prodding one, <coughs> the beyond in our midst, loving presence, the one before whom all words recoil, the luminous web that holds all things together, the great lap, sacred spirit, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, an energy flow that likes to extend itself, great forgiver, suffering one, the one whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere, liberating freedom, that which we cannot speak of and one about whom and to whom we must never stop talking, she who restores our soul, the light inside everything, infinite primal source, the knowable unknowable. There are just a few names here, certainly not an exhaustive list, but I want to keep looking for names for God. I want to keep paying attention. I want to keep noticing names, images for God, wherever and however they show up. There's a great image of this being like fingers pointing at the moon. We see this light and we're pointing to it and from our unique vantage point we're trying to describe what we see. And our fingers are not the same thing as the moon. It becomes problematic when we conflate the two. And yet we see this, this light we see the stars around the moon and we point to this landscape and seek to name what we see. And I'm convinced the image that I have of this is that the more diverse hands that are in the air pointing to that moon and naming what they see, the closer we'll get to what the thing actually is. So I want to join that community of one who's willing to stand and go, I'm just one person in my particularities and my embodiment, but here's what I see. 
And I want to be close enough to you that when you're standing there, pointing at the moon, saying what you see, that I get to overhear what you say and see it more fully too. May that be so in your life and mine and in our communities. Friends, it's been a gift to be with you. Thank you for your time, for your engagement. Uh, I brought some copies of my book. There's here, I've got more in the car. If you'd like, you're welcome to grab one. I'll hang around for a few minutes if you like to, to chat. Honored by your presence today. Peace to each of you. Thanks, friends. Thank you.